You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to episode 180 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Um, on Dunn's Elegies for Elizabeth Drury. I'm Katie Grubbs, and with me tonight are Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and Marie Haas. Hi, ladies. Hi. Hi. We're going to quickly go around and introduce ourselves. Uh, for anybody who's new to the program, let's start with Victoria. Hi, everyone. I am Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. I'm one of the founding members of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I live in a suburb of Atlanta with my husband, Michael Farmer, of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Um, I work as an engagement manager for a market research firm. Uh, In my free time, I write about gender, culture, and embodiment for various publications. And also, I play the ukulele. Thank you so much. Uh, I still have not had the chance to listen to you play in person, and I'm looking forward to the opportunity because I can't wait. Uh, Um, I mean, you probably shouldn't look forward to it that much, but (laughs) thanks, friend. I can't play any stringed instrument, so no matter how what it sounds like, it's going to sound amazing to me. Um, Marie, how about you? Hi, Uh, I'm Marie Haas. I'm a regular panelist on the show. I've studied early modern literature at Florida State University and women's gender and sexuality studies at Yale Divinity School. And I'm currently part of a project working on the Tudor translations of Christine de Pizan. And I live with my family in Connecticut. Uh, my dissertation actually dealt with images of the cosmos in early modern poetry, so I was interested in Dunn's anniversaries then, of course, and I'm glad to revisit them now. Awesome. Yeah, until you said it, Marie, I'd forgotten that we were all three early modernists, so that's perfect. I, <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that till right now. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm Katie Grubbs, and I live in Leeds, Alabama, just outside Birmingham, with my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I um, also studied early modern literature, in my case, at the University of Georgia, and um, I am currently a full-time mom to our four kids and a part-time college professor. I am an adjunct professor of English for uh, the recently renamed Houston Christian University. We were Houston Baptist, now we're Houston Christian University, and I've been teaching for them since 2017, and uh, that is a really fun part of my day whenever I get to do some literature with some students. Um, Well, I wanted to talk for just a couple minutes about why I chose to talk about these particular poems. They're not much known outside of probably being honest, graduate students who read them for graduate school in early modern literature. even among Dunn's poems, they're not much talked about. But um, years ago, I read them for my dissertation and um, was remembering recently how interesting I thought they were and um, how how interesting it is to me that he took this person who we would consider insignificant, Elizabeth Drury, a very young young lady um, who had passed away, and then spins her death out into the, these extravagant philosophical pontifications. And that's why I thought this would be interesting to discuss. Um, Before we jump into knowing, I kind of wanted to just ask if you guys wanted to say anything about Dunn or about these poems, or if there was anything that you guys wanted to talk about, um, or or how you felt encountering these poems for the first time reading them. Um, I'll start. I read these poems for the first time preparing for this episode. Um, I knew that they existed just because I, like the two of you, um, went to graduate school to be an early modernist. I have read a lot of Dunn. I've taken classes um, in his work. I have taught his work. Um, All that said, these poems are completely bonkers. 
Like, even for John Donne, who does a lot of weirdo metaphysical stuff, and even for the Jacobean period, in my view, which has a lot of strange preoccupations with death and the soul and does a lot of crazy extended metaphors for death, like, even knowing that all of those things are true, these poems stand out as particularly uh, intense and strange, in my view. So it, it was a fun uh, reading experience, and uh, actually reminded me um, why I really love early modern metaphysics, after a long break from reading that kind of thing, because I, um, as I'm not an academic anymore, um, career-wise, I don't get a lot of chances to revisit texts like this unless I am just reading them for fun or prepping for this podcast. So uh, thanks for that, Katie. It was a fun experience. Yeah, I was also, uh, I, I found it very enjoyable to um, revisit these poems because I think I first read them for my dissertation work as well, but I was first introduced to Dunn through his Holy Sonnets, and ha th these poems have a lot of the same, like, characteristics that you find in his sonnets with all the... Uh, his characteristic compression of expression and these really weird metaphors, um, really weird connections. But the first anniversary, especially, I, I've liked since I first encountered it because of its uh, mixing together so many of these um, cosmological, scientific, um, natural philosophy concepts um, that I'm sure we'll discuss some of, but it has the famous line that the new philosophy calls all in doubt, and, and that's um, a big concern in the poem. So that's why it's so interesting to me. Thank you all so much. Um, I I mainly had read these poems uh, years ago for my dissertation because they, even though it stretches the limits, they technically count as a child elegy. Um, Elizabeth Drury was about 14, when she died. Um, so really, especially at the time, probably more considered an adult than a child, but the way that Dunn writes about her, he writes about her as if she was a child. And um, so that was kind of why I first had read them, and that was what I was most focused on years ago reading them, um, was what aspects of the child elegy, what aspects of the genre he was using, which ones he was using, and which ones he wasn't, um, and how he was manipulating those. Um, Rereading it this time, I noticed different things um, and a lot of things that I found really interesting. One of the things that uh, I noticed back then and noticed afresh this time though is one of the things that he does that is very um, very characteristic of child elegy in general, which is what my dissertation was on, is to to personify death as a person. Um, and he does it two or three different times. So in the two in the different poems taken together, the the different anniversaries, you get death as an usher who has to unlock the door for you to pass into the afterlife. Death is um, also uh, the groom who opens the door, brings the candle into the room to prepare um, the room for the person who's coming in. And my personal favorite is that death is the midwife who um, births us into um, our second birth. And so I noticed all those again this time and love them just as much as I did years ago. Okay, well, let's go ahead and move on to our knowing. Um, and we're going to give some background listeners on Dunn and also on the poems, just so you can kind of get a sense um, for what these are. Because Dunn had so many different di different types of poetry. Um, if you haven't encountered them before, you might be thinking, oh, they're probably like X poem or whatever. But um, he had such diversity um, kind of in his body of work that... Um, I don't know that you can, unless you've read these exact poems, it'd be difficult to compare them to something else. So I'm going to go first, and I'm just going to give some background on Dunn himself, um, if you don't know much about him. Um, just some basic facts about his life, and hopefully I won't go on too long, because I've had a weakness for Dunn always. So um, so he was living end of the uh, 16th century and then into the 17th century, 1571 to about 1631, and he did lots of different things in his life. Um, we know him best now as a poet um, and a scholar, but he was also a soldier. He served as a secretary. He was a member of parliament, and he was a cleric in the Church of England. Um, 
his story is kind of interesting because he was born into a recusant Catholic family um, and stayed true to those beliefs long enough that even though he attended both Oxford and Cambridge, he couldn't, he didn't take a degree from either place because he wouldn't say the oath of supremacy to be able to get his degree. Um, however, by the, uh, by later in his life, he was writing anti-Catholic pamphlets and then ended up becoming a Church of England cleric. Um, and so it was kind of an interesting theological journey for him. Um, he's considered the foremost of the metaphysical poets um, who were a group of 17th century poets characterized by various different things. One of the biggest ones is the use of conceits or extended metaphors. Um, they also were making a break from the kind of highly regimented formalized verse styles being used by some of the poets before them. Um, and extensive wordplay, um, which you see in spades with Dunn, maybe more than with anybody else. Like I said, he wrote lots of different types of poetry and lots of things that weren't poetry. So he was writing sonnets, um, and some of those were religious, um, but also there were love poems. He wrote epigrams, um, elegies, not just these ones we're talking tonight. He wrote lots of elegies. Um, satires and also sermons and he was well known for his skill in writing sermons we have 160 of his sermons still today and his most famous sermon is called death's duel which is one that he gave shortly before his own death um so we have lots of different types of texts um these poems um have an interesting structure that um marie's going to talk about here in a little bit um he traveled extensively, and I think you can kind of feel that in his poetry too. Um, among other things, he fought in Spain with Sir Walter Raleigh um, and did a lot of different kind of things in Europe. And uh, the only other things I would say that are maybe relevant for some of this is that um, in this poem, he's writing about the death of a child, which is something that he had experience with, he and his wife. And um, she gave birth to 12 children in the course of their marriage. And um, two of those were stillbirths. And he actually lost his wife when they lost their last child, which was stillborn. So he knew what it was like to lose a child, um, also to have lots of children. Um, and this poem was written for the child of his patron. And that was another thing that characterized his life, really his whole adult life, until closer to the end was a kind of constant financial insecurity. Um, and so he had to rely on patrons like Drury to fund his writing because he didn't have that kind of, um, that amount of personal wealth to be able to fund it himself. Um, and then right at the end of his life, he was being a cleric. He was ordained a Church of England priest in 1615, though that was not his choice. The king wanted him to do it. King James wanted him to do it. So he said, okay, I'll do it. And um, apparently, though it wasn't his his own choice, he was um, respected and skilled enough as a cleric that he was made Dean of St. Paul's in, in 1621 and then um, served in those types of roles until he died in 1631. So a really interesting person um, and who created really interesting verse. Um, and that's, I guess, the best transition I can make to Victoria, who's going to tell us about these specific poems um, in more detail. So these poems are written in 1611 and 1612. Uh, and as Katie already said, they're written to commemorate the death of Elizabeth Drury, who is the 14-year-old daughter of Dunn's patron, Sir Robert Drury. Um, Sir Robert was quite an important man. He was a knight. He was lord of the manor Hostead in Suffolk. Um, he was a knight of the body to both Henry VII and Henry VIII. Um, he was a political man as well, um, knight of Suffolkshire, speaker of the House of Commons, and also a privy councillor uh, and a barrister. He was married twice and fathered six children total. Um, and these poems are about uh, his second daughter, Elizabeth. Um, his oldest daughter um, also died at age four. Um, Elizabeth dies when she's 14. And Dunn uses her in these poems um, as kind of an embodiment of purity and womanhood and a figure of idealized femininity um, 
And then her death becomes this really long conceit, extended metaphor, as we've already said, for the fall of man uh, in total. Um, In the first poem, that's uh, explored. And in the second poem, um, we have... I hesitate to say a turn toward the positive because everything is just so strange, Um, but we're talking a little less about human error and a little more about um, the nature of the soul and how the soul comes to be and how and why it's attached to the body. Um, So it's it's a little less about kind of post-lapsarian lamentation. Thanks. That's uh, a really good summary of, and I and I do think you're right about the second one having, especially near the end, a slightly more positive tone, if only because the focus shifts to the soul's ascension. <laughs> so, um, though that one weirdly starts out with lots of really gross metaphors, though it's kind of an interesting journey in that second one. Um, well, Marie's going to talk last here, and she's going to give us a little bit about the genre and also the structure of the poems because um, it is very different from some of Dunn's other poetry. Yeah, uh, so, of course, like we've been talking about, these two anniversaries are elegies for the 14-year-old Elizabeth Drury, but they're also um, sort of funeral orations um, in terms of their genre or eulogies that offer this apotheosis of her. Um, And it's such a hyperbolic apotheosis that Ben Johnson is famously supposed to have objected to the poems as full of blasphemies, saying that if it had been written of the Virgin Mary, it had been something. And Dunn's reply was that he described the idea of a woman and not as she was. So the Elizabeth Drury of the poems is this pattern of prelapsarian perfection rather than a real woman. And the poems offer, in terms of genre, offer private meditations rather than a public funeral oration. Um, Influentially, Lewis Smarts read them in light of Ignatian meditations specifically. Uh, So looking at the two poems, the first anniversary uh, connects the absence of the perfection represented by Elizabeth Drury with general decay um, and three Uh, connected areas, the human body, the earth, and the heavens. Um, The first anniversary is a poem of 237 couplets, and it's structured around the lessons that the speaker says can be learned by anatomizing this threefold carcass. Each of these five lessons is accompanied by a thesis and its proofs and uh, an elegiac counterexample praising Elizabeth Drury. I'm drawing here on George Williamson's um, classic description of the design of the anniversary poems. Um, so, for example, uh, looking at the structure, the third thesis is that proportion is lost with proofs being taken from the changeability of the stars and the lack of perfection in their motions, from the imperfection of the Earth's surface, and from the unevenness and diseases of human skin. So connecting those three areas with each other in the proofs. And then Elizabeth Drury is the counterexample of perfect proportion and harmony. And then the lesson is how ugly a monster this world is, and that here is nothing to enamor thee. Um, so all of the five lessons sort of have this similar kind of structure. With uh, an introduction, five lessons, and a conclusion defending the speaker's boldness in writing the poem, the first anniversary has seven sections in total. And um, that's something that unites it with the second anniversary structurally. Uh, The second anniversary is a poem in 264 couplets and turning, it it turns like Victoria noted from a primary focus arguing for decay to portraying the progress of the soul into heaven as an argument for accepting death as that which frees the soul and for focusing on the essential joys of heaven. Uh, And this poem is also structured in seven parts, though the divisions are to me a little bit less obvious here because with the first anniversary have this very uh, marked repeated refrain and you don't have that as clearly in the second anniversary. 
but there are seven eulogies of Elizabeth Drury that alternate with um, either instruction or meditation, depending on how, if you read it as meditation. Um, so that's just a tiny bit about uh, the structure of the poems. That's amazing. <laughs> I you, I just learned things that I never knew before, um, because when I was went digging into them years ago, it I was in that like dissertation, find as many examples as I can kind of mode, and I didn't have the time to go do the deep dive into um, into the structure, and that's fascinating. Um, and I'll say one more thing about these uh, poems, just and. Uh, well, no, actually I'm not, because we're going to talk about that in a minute for reading. So I'm not going to say anything else about these poems um, in this section, <laughs> <laughs> because I don't want to step on my later point. Okay, um, so we're going to move now into talking about some more specifics. Um, so, and actually this, what I was about to say is, is part of the answer to the very first question. So my very first question tonight, um, and I'm going to see what you guys think about this first, and then I'm going to talk about it because this is something I've thought a lot about, but I want you guys to have your chance to chime in first. So um, the first question I wanted to ask is just a very general question, which is what is an elegy period, or perhaps particularly like one like this for a child, if you think it does different things, what is an elegy supposed to do for the person who's being honored? Hmm, for, for the person that's being honored, I was thinking of it more in terms of what it's supposed to do for the, like, imagined audience that's supposed to, like, treat their grief through grief and provide a sort of catharsis, but... Uh, what well, that's fine, too. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that, or, yeah, then what is the purpose, period? I'll, then that, yeah, that works, too. I would say in addition to providing um, catharsis, which I would ag agree is the kind of chief um, public per purpose of an elegy, elegies are also supposed to um, to elevate the person being mourned and remembered, um, sometimes through metaphor and sometimes just through like copia or or recitation of um of virtue or accomplishment yeah i think and it goes both ways i i like marie that you brought up what it's supposed to do for the audience because i think that that is the most i mean that's the effect we can see um and often you know elegies were written to comfort parents um or written by parents to as a way to try to comfort themselves or to express to express feelings. Um, in terms of, uh, and Victoria, I think, touched on the biggest kind of um, aspect of public elegies, at least in the early modern period, especially for grown-ups, which is the extolling of the accomplishments of the person. Um, you know, the, the things that they did, why they were so great. Um, and, and it took different forms sometimes it might stress um, that person's you know, their poetry, like, you know, everybody wrote an elegy for Shakespeare. Like it was like, everybody had to get in on it. You know, there were a million elegies for Prince Henry, the King's son when he died pretty young. Um, you know, and so sometimes it was a person who had actually done things that people would want to brag on, or, you know, would want to talk about their accomplishments with a younger person. Um, often the discourse was in the stolen potential or the unfulfilled potential um, mm. with somebody like Sir Philip Sidney is a great example of that. He had already done so much. And so there were accomplishments to extol, but there was also so much more he could have done. And that was the emphasis in a lot of, um, a lot of poetry when he died. Um, but that's, that's where it gets a little more complicated for a child because children don't tend to have accomplishments. And that was the biggest thing I was exploring in the dissertation was what is, um, what is the child elegy? What is the point of the child elegy? What's it supposed to do? It can't be, it can't be telling someone's accomplishments who died when they were two, for example, or, um, you know, uh, Ben Johnson famously wrote elegies for two, his two children who died. His son was seven. Um, and his daughter, I think much younger, maybe three or four. Um, and so then how, that's the problem, I guess, with child elegy is how do you give significance to the death of a person who has no accomplishments? to speak of um other than other and obviously that death is significant for the family because of um because of the bonds of love but other than we cared about this person you know what can you say about someone so small and it different people did different things um you know done 
not done, Johnson imagined his little girl in the train of Mary in heaven, right? So sometimes it was connecting them to a greater spiritual reality, which is definitely the path that Dunn takes um, with Elizabeth Drury to some degree. Um, sometimes it was talking about their family history. Um, you know, there were all different kinds of ways that um, people would do it. And it's always interesting to me to see uh, what what the different moves that they make are. These elegies to me are particularly interesting because Dunn does connect Elizabeth to greater spiritual realities, but he's also connecting her to all these other concepts that Marie mentioned earlier to science and cosmology and, you know, all these other ideas, um, geography, like all these other things. Um, he's bringing all these other, these other ideas in um, as a way of ennobling her and ennobling her death by saying, look, you know, she was young and she wasn't um, maybe somebody other people would have considered remarkable, but she's, you know, I've decided that I'm going to have her represent all of these bigger things, you know. And so then it kind of is a, uh, and I'm really glad um, uh, that, uh, which one of you guys brought up the Johnson quote where Johnson said it was, if it had been written about the Virgin Mary, it would have been good. Oh, that was me. <laughs> okay. That's great. Because really, you read this and you think, okay, but like everybody's souls don't find their source in Elizabeth Drury, right? <laughs> you read it and you think this is ludicrous. Um, but, you know, Dunn, as he said, was looking at her. He w It wasn't actually about her. And so often with child elegies, it's not actually about the child because that child might have been so small that you know there's there's not much significance there for people besides the parents or if you're mary carey uh and her one of her most well-known poems she's not a very well-known poet but one of the poems that people anybody who's read her has probably read is she wrote a poem called upon the site of my abortive birth when she had a miscarriage and she's you know giving she's trying to um work out her grief but also give spiritual significance to having lost a child who hadn't even been born yet um in a really early miscarriage and so it's it's i feel like these poems are interesting because done is like the nth degree of trying to give significance to a person young enough to have been relatively insignificant in life and i just find that fascinating yeah that's really interesting what you're talking about the need to find accomplishments for this person who's wouldn't really have many accomplishments yet because that helps me understand that odd moment in um, the funeral elegy, um, the poem that accompanies the first anniversary usually, uh, where he, the speaker says that Elizabeth Drury only, she attained the age of reason and then had liberty, but she only took so much liberty for herself, uh, thus much to die. Um, so it's like her death was her accomplishment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is odd because we've just read this whole first anniversary poem where it's like, the death is the worst thing ever, ever, ever. And it's like, oh, yes, it's the best thing she did <laughs> in the, the yes. funeral elegy. That's true. And, I, I, and I'm glad you mentioned the funeral elegy, too, because if we don't say anything else about that, one of my favorite or one of the best things in that, that sh much shorter poem is he kind of gives a – a very short little discussion of what is an elegy, what does it do, um, when he says, can these memorials, rags of paper, give life to that name by which name they must live? So he kind of talks a little bit, refers to, like, why write an elegy? What is this even for? Like, why are we doing this um, in that shorter funeral elegy? Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, well, so what – so and all that kind of makes sense to me out of the – the first anniversary of writing an elegy for her at all, but why do we, why write another elegy for her a year later? Victoria, I know you had some thoughts about that. Yeah, so I think two things are happening here. Um, first, um, I want to speak to kind of the general idea of the anniversaries of someone's death. Um, I am a Stephen minister with my church, um, and if listeners, if you don't know what a Stephen minister is, um, we're named after uh, Stephen, the first martyr, who said that uh, the church has a responsibility to care for widows and orphans, and we are trained lay counselors who um, are assigned a person that we walk alongside who's going through some kind of life difficulty. Um, maybe they 
um, lost a child or lost a spouse. Maybe they um, had a child and their life is just different. Maybe they're dealing with aging or recovering for an, from an illness. Um, all kinds of big life changes that you just need extra help and companionship to walk through. And um, you train for 60 hours to, to qualify for this position. And a large part of that training is dealing with anniversaries. And they teach us how to um, mark anniversaries of um, traumatic events and to expect that the person that we are helping um, will um, react maybe strangely to these anniversaries, that grief um, comes for all kinds of life events and that grief does not model a linear progression, that anniversaries change the way we deal with life and to kind of expect the unexpected in that regard. So um, I was kind of bringing a little bit of that training to reading these poems that um, that I, I was thinking about the first anniversary and the second anniversary differently because of that. Because grief is a strange nonlinear process and you don't know where it's going to go. So um, of course he would be in a different place metaphysically philosophically, theologically, um, with the second anniversary than he would be with the first. He has a more positive outlook on kind of the nature of humanity. He's thinking less about um, death and soul-level death and more about where the soul comes from. Um, that this kind of progression makes sense in that it doesn't make a lot of sense and that that's just sort of how human grief works. So that's that's one thing um, that I was thinking of in terms of why the second anniversary. And the second thing I was thinking of is Dunn is all about extended metaphors, right? We've already said that. So of course he's going to write a second poem in which he extends an already extended metaphor in a different direction. Like that just makes a certain kind of sense. Um, so those are my thoughts, but I'm sure you two have other things to say. Well, I was just curious from uh, what Katie brought up earlier about the stillbirths um, that Dunn and his wife had. Was it, I'm a little foggy on the timeline, I thought that his first, the first stillbirth was like between the, the first and second anniversaries. Could that have contributed to... Um, like the difference in tone and focus that we see in these poems, maybe his own personal experience with losing a child in that way. It's possible. I'm not totally clear on the dates myself. I know that um, in 1617 is when he lost the second one. Um, and that's when he lost his wife. But I don't know when the first one, I don't know when he lost the first baby. So the second one would have been years after he wrote these elegies, but you know, it could have been. And I mean, I'm not I'm not totally sure about that, but I do think that um, if that is true, um, that that's how it went down. I do think it might have changed the way that he was thinking about things, though. It would be interesting that it would if if, if that is how it went down, it'd be interesting that the second poem feels more hopeful, though. You know what I mean? Like, uh, though, to be fair, for the time period, Dunn had way more children who survived than most people did. I'll say that. I mean. To have 12 born and alive, and or sorry, 10 out of 12 born alive, and then I think he maybe lost three others in childhood, I can't remember, but um, it's a surprising amount of children to have live. But I know that um, from what I've read, even just having that many children all at the same time, um, she pretty much had a baby almost every year. Um, and to have, you know, not very, not very much wherewithal to feed and care for them was an enormous strain. So, I mean, it's possible that some of the the darkness, even in that first poem, is not just coming from this death that he's having to write about, but also just his own experiences of having a big family who were probably sick all the time and trying to handle all of that. I mean, he was seeing the corruption of the world all the time. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, even if he hadn't lost his own yet, um, he was probably daily confronted with the fact that we're dying from the minute we're born. I, you know what I mean? Like, um, so I don't, I, I, I can't exactly, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> what, what date that, that was. Um, I'll have to see if I can find it later. 
Um, uh, I think. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I just uh, from the the timeline at the beginning of the edition that I'm using, which is the uh, Penguin Classics one, edited by A.J. Smith, has the first stillbirth being in the same year as the second anniversary. But I just don't know if it was before or after he actually wrote the poem. <laughs> but that's really interesting. Um, I I think um, I was just going to say about this question: Why do a second one? I mean, there's the there's the kind of cynical answer which is that if someone's your greatest patron maybe you do your utmost to honor that person and so maybe you 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 know try to keep honoring that anniversary in the second anniversary or sorry in the first anniversary he says he's actually going to do it yearly but as far as we know he only did these two um because he says in the and i think it's interesting too that he says in the first anniversary accept this tribute and his first year's rent who till his dark short tapers end be spent as oft as thy feast sees this widowed earth will yearly celebrate thy second birth. That is thy death. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. He used the word rent because I, and I didn't notice that years ago when I read it, but I wrote out in, in my margin this time, like probably literally though, like this is helping to pay his rent. I mean, you know, like <laughs> yeah. this stuff, this, the, the poetry for Drury and things like that is keeping his family afloat. Yeah. And so, but you know, also, I, I mean, yeah. I, I agree with you, like, of course he was his patron, and and obviously that has something to do with this, but he had relationships with the rest of the Drury family, too. Like, yeah, they, they, they lived very close um, to each other um, for, for a brief period in the same lodgings. Um, he knows these children. He, at least to a certain degree, watched them grow up. So, like... I mean, obviously, you have to think about the money here. I agree with that. But I, I do think there's more to it than that as well. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think – I definitely don't think that that – because, honestly, if he was just wanting to do something to 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 make sure that he was in his patron's good graces, he didn't have to write this. Do you know what I mean? Like, he, he spent so much time um, to write these, you know, labyrinthine, complicated poems that, um, you know – make her seem just like this i mean the number of the i mean were, do you guys remember that part where he's talking about her about how her skin is like made of light do you know what i'm talking about and she has like all the star shine in her eyes like the descriptions are so beautiful so yeah i i don't think that it was like a cold thing um i just i had noticed that first time the for the first time that he was kind of talking about it as the tribute as a kind of rent he's paying each year on the anniversary and it made me wonder why he didn't keep doing it do you know what I mean? Because he says he's going to, um, but we only get two anniversaries. And I just thought mm -hmm. that was interesting. Um, I mean, he only lived four more years. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We'll maybe give him a pass that he didn't write four instead of two. Because um, he was writing, because he was, I think it, right at the end of his life, he was writing mostly sermons. Because that was his main job, was uh, was was being a cleric. Um, what? Well, so let's... Let's go ahead and go to our next question because we're talking about this anyway. For for the reader, if you're if you're just as 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 you're experiencing this as a reader, what is the effect of him doing this? Of him taking this one human girl and connecting her to all of these huge spiritual concepts? I know we had some thoughts about that, Marie. Yeah, well, uh, like you mentioned earlier, Katie. Um, one like the major effect of this is that it becomes not really about a human girl at all but this elizabeth drury becomes an abstraction whether we read that abstraction as virtue as the animating principle of the world as wisdom with a capital w as poetry even or so on um so one effect then is you lose the human girl, or if you try to keep her, the poems then become the kind of laughable hyperbole that Johnson objected to. Um, so Elizabeth Drury's death is not just one girl's death. It's this microcosm expressing macrocosmic decay and corruption. And then her heavenward journey is not just one soul's journey, but the soul's progress. Um, and it's mildly interesting to me that Dunn chooses this young girl as his exemplar of perfection rather than a grown man, which we might sort of expect someone um, to take as an exemplar of human perfection. Um, though he does have the speaker say that she takes a body belonging to the weaker sex as an ally to so pure a mind. So 
um, it's not really an extreme um, departure, I suppose. But on the other hand, if we do try to bring the poems back around to a real human Elizabeth Drury and her real death, maybe we could get the idea from that that every human life could have this cosmic dimension to it because he's able to make that connection between Elizabeth Drury and all of the cosmos. Um, and if he can do it with this pretty insignificant child, then we could take any child's death and do this with it. And I guess that the human potential for following the example of this poetically elevated Elizabeth Drury is, is something that these poems do ascribe to every human. But really, mostly the poems are just not about a real Elizabeth Drury at all. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying, Marie. Um, I also had the thought while reading, um, and I, I don't know anything about the reception history of these poems. I haven't even looked this up, so I could be super off base here. But I, I was wondering about the potential for um, ascribing these poems to a, a kind of sanctity of life argument, because it, it does seem to suggest that human life has the potential to point toward the divine and and have this kind of greater cosmological significance. And I, I wonder if anyone has done anything with that. That's a really interesting, I really like that, Victoria. And I think it goes in line. Um, I think you, because you see a lot in, um, in child elegies the, of the period, the idea that the that the child, um, not even necessarily that the child is innately good, right? Because theologically, few writers at the time would have said that that's true because they all believed in original sin. But that the idea that the child, by by dying before they have lived to grow up, has escaped to some degree the corruption of life or of the world. Um, ben Johnson even says in his, his poem for his son that he's uh, escaped worlds and flushes rage and if nothing else, yet age even. Like he talks about his son as having not had to deal with things like that. Um, but I think it's in the funeral elegy part, um, he says of Elizabeth, she soon expired clothed in her virgin white integrity for marriage, though it doth not stain, doth die to escape the infirmities which wait upon woman, she went away before she was one. So, you know, he's maybe one one of the ways he can kind of cast her as this perfectly pure, like, um, you know, kind of personification of all perfection is in part because she didn't live to grow up. So she didn't, you know, she she died a virgin. She didn't live to grow up to do normal uh, human body things like have babies herself or, you know, before she'd had time to you know, um, get older, get sicker. Right. You know, and, um, I think, I think it kind of, and to some degree, this is very much not a typical, it's, it's not even a little bit of typical child elegy. <laughs> um, for the most part, it's not, but that's one of the things that in it, that's in it that is interesting. And I think that does fit with a lot of other ones is the idea that she has expired in a kind of state of, um, relative innocence compared to a grown up of either gender. Right. Or, um, you know, that she's, um, she has, um, she's died. And, and that goes, that connects too with what Marie said. He mentioned that, you know, her dying is somehow her greatest accomplishment. Um, the idea, and that, that fits with another kind of very typical child elegy idea too, which is that, um, the idea that truly, you know, if you, if you're looking at it from the point of view of the child who has died is now with God, then, you know, the, then the poem would say various poems basically say they're in like it's better for them that they're gone than that they're here and that is also a really common idea so i do think that's part of it but i also think that you're right victoria i think that if i think that it could be extended to any other person um and i i think that at least I think Dunn could have done it. I don't know that not everybody has the skill, perhaps. But I do think that he is saying, even though these poems are full of these metaphors that talk about how how much of bodily life is just gross and like decaying and all this kind of stuff, despite all of that, then it still ends in the noble progress of the soul. So I do think that you guys are onto something with that for sure. Oh, I wanted to mention about 
the, these being anniversary poems specifically and going along with what you were pointing out, Katie, about her uh, Elizabeth Drury's virginal purity in these poems, there's a connection, I think, going on with um, St. Lucy, which is something people have talked about with these poems um, because the actual anniversary date itself is December 13th, the Feast of St. Lucy. Um, so you have all these connections being made between St. Lucy and Elizabeth Drury, one of them being um, dying in a state of virginal purity. And also, of course, the, the you mentioned uh, Elizabeth Drury being made of light or light shining through her skin. All these light things have to do with St. Lucy too, of course. Thank you for thank you for putting that in too because I I'd forgotten that that and I know he, he mentions it there at least once in one of the one of the anniversaries he mentions Lucy, but I can't remember where it is and the, the poems are so long that um, I lose track and and at least the this time the the easiest thing for me to read this time because I couldn't find my printed done was um, an online edition of like the sixteen twenty one publication of these poems with its original spelling. <laughs> And there are no line numbers. So it was difficult this time to remember where things were. I found myself writing down whole quotes just so that I didn't forget them. Um, well, oh, go ahead. Oh, I, I think you're, you're thinking of the beginning of the second anniversary when um, Elizabeth Drury's death is compared to Sleeping But a St. Lucy's Night, which is in line 120. Yes, thank you. I knew it was in there somewhere and I couldn't remember. Um, well, we, we've talked a lot. We mentioned multiple times about metaphors. So I think my, my, for my last kind of formal question for this evening, I just wanted to ask you guys uh, if you had a favorite metaphor in any of these poems, um, extended or otherwise, even a short one, um, what was one of the one of the metaphors that you uh, caught your eye the most or you found the most um, interesting or poignant or gross <laughs> as it may be? Um, so first I'm going to talk about an extended metaphor that I did not like, though I will not read it. Um, lot, lot, lot of disability as sin metaphor in this, um, mm -hmm. which, which yeah. is a, a yeah. poetic trend I'm glad we have left behind. Um, yeah, that's true. That's, not a, yeah. not a big fan of that. Um, so the metaphor I found, like... I don't think it was the weirdest, but it was the one where I was like, wow, man, you went super hard on that, um, was when he's talking about um, connections between, like, Eve and sin and marriage. Um, it's about 105-ish lines into the first anniversary um, for that first marriage was our funeral. One woman at one blow then killed us all, and singly, one by one, they kill us now. We do delightfully ourselves allow to that consumption, and profusely blind we kill ourselves to propagate our kind. And yet we do not that, we are not men. There is not now that mankind which was then, when as the sun and man did seem to strive, joint tenants of the world who should survive. So... Like, Eve is sin, is death, is birth, is death, and all men are mortal, and isn't that a drag? Like, that's just a lot. I always I always notice that line when he says one woman, uh, th that first marriage was, uh, was the first blow. I, I always underline it and end up writing out, like, that's harsh. <laughs> out to the side. It's, um, it's pretty harsh. Yeah. Uh, when I was but, reading these this time, and you get to all the parts where it's like all the the misogyny, and he can't resist the misogynistic jokes and satire. I'm like, oh, done. Why can't you resist that? But it's because he's done. That's why. But like, oh. <laughs> um, well, that whole disquisition right after that, Victoria, where he's talking about how isn't it terrible that people are so short now? And they're they're small and they <laughs> they don't live long, you know. Um, that that part always makes me laugh. I had written down one of my favorite um, little little short metaphors in there is when he says, "Mankind decays so soon, we're scarce our father's shadows cast at noon." I love that. Um, I uh, yeah, well, and and also Victoria, you're talking about that too. Later, when he says that um, he says that the ancients were prophesying about her when they called virtues she. And so, well, then, like, and one of you guys mentioned earlier, why why does she choose to be born a woman then? And he says it's to drive out the stain of Eve. I'm like, okay. Um, 
that's a lot of pressure, right? Like, I understand that the child has already died, but, like, that is a lot to put on a person, even if you're not talking actually about her. Like, slow down, sir. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Um, I had two different... I had a metaphor I thought was super gross and one that I really that I really liked. Um, there's a, I'm not going to say it's super extended, but it's five or six or seven lines at the beginning of the second anniversary that about a, a beheading um, where he, he talks about how there's still, there's still motion in the world. That's it's the line. There's motion and corruption. It's leading up to that line, but he's talking about things that are like still moving, even though they're dead. And he goes on and on about a head that's been cut off from the body. And even though the blood is bleeding, the eyes are still blinking and it's all very, very gross. Yeah. I was um, hoping someone would talk about that. Cause I, oh, like, man. Yeah, I, so I had to read it multiple times, even though I was grossed out by it. Cause I was like, how is this still happening? I told David, though, and then I got even more horrified because I looked up at David. I'd forgotten he was a soldier, and I looked up at David and said, what if he saw that happen? Like, Mm -hmm. I, because he might have done. There's a different metaphor, and I think the second anniversary where he talks about, um, he's talking about the soul breaking free of the body when we die. And he says that it's like if you try, if it's like shooting, if you try to shoot a rusty gun and it explodes because it's rusted. And that was another just really like, um, military metaphor you know that i thought was interesting um but the other the other feels like you wouldn't invent that out of the air like i i feel like that's not something that you would just make up that if you if you drew on it you probably either heard of it happening or saw it happening exactly um and and then the odd because the bullet then is the soul is a vehicle for death even though the soul is supposed to be the good thing that's strange (laughs) Yeah, I know. Um, I and I think the other one that I okay, I'm sorry. There's two more. There's two more that I really like. One is in the and they're all. It's funny. They're all in the second anniversary. Um, he also talks in there um, about the second anniversary as um, the like child of Elizabeth. So he says, "Though thou wouldst refuse the name of mother." Be unto my muse a father, since her chaste ambition is yearly to bring forth such a child as this. These hymns may work on future wits, and so may great-grandchildren of their praises grow. Um, and I thought that one was really interesting because he's not just giving significance to her self, in herself, to remind everybody that she was great and then also kind of pontificate on her, but also seeing the poetry itself as, um, as the children that she never had a chance to have. Um, and that's very similar in, in, um, in Ben Johnson's elegy for his son. He says that his son was his best piece of poetry. Um, so he saw his own son that he was elegizing. I don't think that's a word, but he saw his own son as as poetry. And then Dunn is kind of positing that the, these poems as the kind of poetic children of Elizabeth Drury, which I thought I thought was really interesting. My other favorite one and that one, too. Oh, go ahead. Was somebody going to say something? Um, Yeah, I thought that was really cool, too, because I think we see a lot of poetry as immortality in the early modern poets. Um, Milton does it. Shakespeare does it. um, Lots of other people do. Anne Bradstreet um, is later. Anyway, we see that a lot. But what I think is different about this example is that... um, in that she is involved in the birth, there's a kind of quasi-autonomy happening that we don't see in, for example, Shakespeare's sonnets to the young man. Um, so I thought that was an, an interesting dimension uh, in a, a common period trope. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's particularly because she was a young woman at the time, I think it gives her an agency, you know, beyond any that she probably would have had in life um for sure i think and then the last the last one i just wanted to say is that i really like in in the second anniversary the way that he keeps talking about the proximity of the proximity of heaven to earth in the moment of death um and he does it he does it when he talks about um death bringing a taper to another room and you'd like see a glimmering light in another room but my favorite part is he says for when our soul enjoys this her third birth creation gave her one a second grace heaven is as near and present to her face as colors are and objects in a room where darkness was before when tapers come so the idea that 
there's not this huge transition. It's just you're in a dark room and then now somebody's brought the light in and that, that that's how close we are to heaven. And I, I and he keeps coming back to that idea that, you know, like it's heaven's right there. Like it's right in the other room. It's right. It's right on the other side of the candle or, you know, it's right outside the shell. We get to break in the eggshell of life. Um, and I think it does give you that feeling of of more hopefulness, Victoria, that you mentioned. And it and it casts death in a in a positive light, which um which is interesting. Um, you know, all, all the personifications of death and and in these anniversary poems, they're all positive. Um, which is interesting because that's not uniformly true in child elegy um at the time. Um a lot of times it, it's the cold hand of death taking the poor flower children because so often there's botanical metaphors. Um, Dunn is a little bit um, unusual in that way in that he almost uniformly casts death as positive anytime that death is personified in these poems. And I, but it, especially in the second anniversary, that's true. Hmm, yeah. Thinking about how heaven is so close to earth and the second anniversary um, that's related to like my two favorite passages in the, in the two poems. Um, so I mentioned the famous line that the new philosophy calls all in doubt. He says after that, uh, just after that, that the sun is lost and the earth and no man's wit can well direct him where to look for it. Um, because he's talking about among many other things, yeah, the, um, you know, idea of the sun being in the center of the solar system rather than the earth. And, uh, the image that he has in the passage following that is of, um, the sun impaled, within a zodiac of the 12 signs. This is at line 263 and then the first anniversary. And that um, sort of impaling of the sun is really an interesting image to me because he's combining like an old image of the cosmos with the zodiac and saying, well, that's a problem because we've tried to put our own ideas of how to divide the stars onto the stars. Um, and the sun is sort of fettered within that old idea, but then the sun is in the center of this um, uh, image. Um, so he's sort of referring to the new idea of the centrality of the sun and saying, well, that's not good either. Um, so it's this kind of ambiguity about what system he's using. And that ambiguity in the first anniversary with the, the new philosophy calling everything in doubt is part of like the whole problem with the world that we can't read the heavens, we can't understand the cosmos, we can't understand our human bodies, we don't know anything, everything is terrible, the world is decaying, oh no. Um, but then in the second anniversary, we have that passage where we have another sevenfold progression like the, the poem itself where uh, the soul travels through all the heavenly spheres. Um, this is around line 190 and on. And uh, the speaker of the poem points out that this soul is traveling so quickly, like that bullet from um, the rusty piece that we just mentioned. It's, this is right after that, that she doesn't stop to settle any of these debates about astronomy or cosmology. So it's like she doesn't figure out, are there people on the moon or, you know, where's the sun, that sort of thing. Uh, so it's gone from like, oh no, it's so terrible that we don't know anything, we can't know anything and everything is decaying, um, to actually, that's not really the main point. Um, we don't necessarily need to know, we need to focus on sort of the essential joys of heaven and not uh, the structure of the heavens, which is uh, something that uh, just occurred to me as you were talking about the, the closeness of heaven to earth here, Katie. Yeah, I, I, I see, and I didn't even notice that, that kind of, um, that those two were kind of opposite in that way. I did notice, uh, and I couldn't help this time, but notice notice all that kind of astronomical stuff. I, I had picked up for the first time, I didn't notice it, years ago when I read them, that in the first first anniversary when he's talking about how people don't live as long as they used to, he, he talks for a little bit about how, you know, back in, in Bible times, they lived so long that a guy might see a star, a wandering star, and two or three hundred years later be there to see it come back around again. And I, my, that blew my mind because I thought, oh, I didn't realize that they knew in Dunn's time that there were 
that there were comets or things like that that would do that, like that, that, that there were, you know, kind of celestial bodies that um, would only be seen once every couple hundred years. Um, and I mean, and that's just my ignorance about astronomical history. But um, I do think, Marie, when you're talking about that, you know, the when he's talking about the different ways of seeing the heavens and how do they map onto each other. These poems are, in, in a lot of ways, they're so useful and interesting because they do kind of, he kind of gives you a snapshot of scientific thought at the time, really, about a lot of stuff. Um, you know, in the second anniversary, yeah. at one point he mentions kidney stones. Um, there's like, you know, he talks about the ventricles of the heart somewhere in there. There are all these different things that kind of show you kind of what, what did they know about at the time? You know, he's, he pulls in so many different ideas. Um, and it's just, it's, it's fascinating to see all the different things that he makes reference to. And, but I really like that, um, like you said, he kind of, um, almost discards those speculations for the first anniversary, sets them aside, you know, in the second. And that part with the planets in the second is maybe my favorite part when she's zooming past all the different uh the different celestial bodies well let's we could talk about this all night but it's getting late so let's do our final section let's go ahead and talk about passing on um what we'd like to recommend to our listeners tonight and uh victoria how about you go first i am recommending a done adjacent novel um it's a novel from 2003 called the calligrapher by edward dox um, and it is about a calligrapher um, who is also a bit of a rake, a serial monogamist uh, in London. And uh, his girlfriend leaves him and then he falls in love with another woman, a travel writer named Madeline. Um, so it's a kind of romantic comedy novel, um, but it's connected to Dunn because he is commissioned to transcribe Dunn's songs and sonnets for an American businessman. And each chapter um, follows both that commissioning and the writing process, uh, the transcribing process, and his uh blooming relationship with Madeline and each chapter um, is named after and kind of mirrors um, one of the poems in Dunn's Songs and Sonnets. So it is um, a fun kind of sexy novel um, that also analyzes Dunn's poetry. Uh, so The Calligrapher by Edward Docks. That sounds awesome. Um, thank you so much. Vic uh, Marie, how about you? Uh, well, when I was reading the rereading the first anniversary this time, I found myself sort of thinking about climate change and the purposes of lament because, okay, clearly Dunn wasn't writing about climate change like we think about it now. But when the first anniversary talks about like new meteorological experiences and natural catastrophes as examples of a wider decay brought about by human actions, it does kind of resonate um, with that now. Though, of course, he was talking about human actions in terms of original sin. But like, still, it's like kind of an ecological element. But, um, but of course, like, reject the world. It's dead already anyway isn't what you would want to have as uh, the point of an ecological element. So my recommendation is a collection of um, liturgies, many of them environmentally themed, compiled by Anne and Jeffrey Rothorn. It's called God's Good Earth. Um, and also the more lament-oriented sequel, God's Good Earth in Crisis, which is forthcoming, hopefully within a year. Um, so I was a research assistant for the Rothorns for both books, and I think they're valuable resources for churches that want to incorporate sort of productive lament into their services um, when it comes to um, ecological laments. The second one especially is focused on lament. Thank you so much. That sounds fascinating. Um, and listeners, obviously, uh, like always, we'll be providing links to these um, in our show notes. My recommendation is just going to be another done poem because we're all about done this evening. Um, one of my favorite uh, pieces, though it's, it's more than one, uh, one of my favorite things that Dunn wrote is called La Corona, which is a crown. <laughs> or circle of sonnets, um, which was a particular form that a lot of people would uh, dabble in in the early modern period. And I actually wrote a paper about La Corona in advanced grammar class in graduate school, which was exactly as, as fun as it sounded. 
that class. Um, but uh, the reason it was a great fit for that is because La Corona is a series of one, two, three, four, five, six, se seven sonnets. Um, and the first line, uh, so the last line of each sonnet is the first line of the next sonnet. And then the last line of the last sonnet is the same as the first line of the first sonnet. So it's a crown, it's a circle. Um, and it basically walks through um, the life of Christ. So the first sonnet is an introduction to the idea of what he's writing about. The second is called Annunciation. The third is Nativity. The fourth is Temple. The fifth is Crucifying. The sixth is Resurrection. The seventh is Ascension. The reason that it's grammatically interesting is because since he's using the same lines twice, um, he he does, but it's not a pure, it's a pure repetition of the words, but um, the parts of speech will shift and change. So um, the 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 last line of the first sonnet is salvation to all that will is nigh. And then when you begin the second uh, sonnet enunciation, salvation to all that will is nigh, the parts of speech are different. Those words are used differently, even though it's the exact same line. It's really interesting. I also really like it a lot because it's because it is cyclical and because it walks through the life of Christ. It also, for me, has the feeling of um, occasion and of like anniversary, like Victoria was talking about, right? Because it's the kind of thing where each year, you know, I can, around Christmas, I can read Annunciation and Nativity, right? I can read those sonnets in the cycle and then come back. And, you know, um, in Easter week, I can come back and read the crucifying and the resurrection sonnets from this cycle. And it's it's short listeners. I mean, like I said, we, we're talking about seven sonnets. So seven times 14 lines, that's all it is. Um, and it's really fascinating. It's easily findable online. And I think you would enjoy it if you have any love for Dunn, um, particularly his holy sonnets, because um, it it's, um, it's of a piece with those. It's the same tone and a lot of the same ways of talking. Um, well, that is it for us tonight, listeners. Um, we... Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us, um, as always, and um, we would really, really love to hear from you. So if you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, please let us know those. We truly do record all of those in a spreadsheet that we have that our moderators can pull from for future episode ideas. So we do take those ideas seriously if you send them to us. Um, or if you just get, want to get in touch with us, you can do that at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. And you can check out show notes from this and other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. Uh, the CFP is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Um, Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Marie Haas and Victoria Farmer, I am Katie Grubbs. Tune in in two weeks when we will be discussing... Leela Bresco Sargent's newsletter, Other Feminisms. And until then, um, we want, as always, to remind you that in essentials, unity and non-essentials, liberty and in all things, love. <laughs>